Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast Number Three, the award-winning short story "Speaking of the Dead," read by the author. The story is about a man's anger for his dead wife, and he agrees to deliver a eulogy, even though he despises her for betrayal and rejection. He discovers the power of forgiveness through an unanticipated acquaintance with a college student. I'm Bill Coles, your host. So let's get started. Speaking of the Dead by William H. Coles After a six-hour drive north from Toronto, John Hampton arrived at the family home of his departed wife, Grace, and her daughter, Candy both dead six days. The house was dark. His sister-in-law, Ruth, greeted him in a nightgown and a robe and knee-length woolen socks. She led him toward an attic room. He hadn't seen her in more than four years. Henrietta's in the bedroom attached to yours. You'll have to share the loo. You know her, don't you? Candy's roommate? I don't think so, John said. I didn't see Candy often. Oh, you'd remember... Tall, slim girl, round face, crystal blue eyes, black hair cut in a page boy. Unusual, so you can't forget. Is she nice? John asked. You don't even have to talk to her if you don't want to. People call her Henry. I don't like her much. She's silent in a standoffish way. Definitely not shy, and I don't think she was happy about saying a few words in memory of Candy at the funeral when I asked her. I think she almost said no. An adventure in the attic, John said. She won't bother you, especially if she doesn't talk. Roger will be coming to the vigil and the funeral, Ruth said. I'm so sorry. Roger was Grace's first husband, father to Candy, and a lawyer, General Law, whom Grace had left in their first year of marriage, three months pregnant, for good schools and a life in the city. Ruth went back to bed. The attic air was frigid, fed through cracks under eaves. Exhausted, John lay down on a single bed to await the slow coming of sleep, the corpses of Grace and Candy brought to barrow and awaiting burial invaded his thoughts. And he felt generations of the dead that still occupied this austere, two-story, insulin-deficient frame farmhouse. As the living impatiently survived the bitter long winter cold to see the sun and its yearned-for relief in the spring— At 2.24 a.m., someone stood in the door that separated the two bedrooms. Henrietta. She wore a flannel nightgown with a hem that came to above prominent knees. She stood motionless, her arms by her sides, making her look awkward, as if they were hastily attached as replacements. "'What are you doing?' John said, throwing back the covers and sitting on the edge of the bed. "'Are you all right?' She began to walk slowly, her arms angled out in front of her, her glazed eyes staring straight ahead. She was asleep. She turned toward the hall, quickly out of sight. He slipped on his untied shoes and followed her. Without holding on to anything, she started to descend the stairs that led to the garage, twenty narrow, steep steps to the first landing. He rushed to her, taking her elbow and gently leading her back to her room and bed. She did not wake, and he returned to bed. But two hours later... 
A crash of glass and metal followed by a moan came from her room. She knocked over a lamp. John rushed to her, tried to help her, but she pushed him away. "'Where am I?' she said with fear. "'In the attic at Ruth's, Candy's aunt. I'm John Hampton.' Henry understood and calmed a little. He guided her back to bed and pulled up a chair, determined to watch at least for a while, until he was sure she was asleep again. But she remained awake, agitated at times. "'I'm worried,' she said, "'about the eulogy.' "'You'll do fine,' John said. "'I'm not worried about performance. "'I speak well before others. "'It's what to say. "'What about Candy at school? "'Students don't seem to know her as you would expect, "'and many didn't seem to care. "'There must be things about her past you could use.' "'I didn't like her,' she said. "'There were times I stayed with a friend "'rather than go back to the room where she'd be.' "'Think of adjectives,' John said.' As self-centered, mean, lazy, directionless. She smiled with self-deprecation. Selfish and not too bright. Uh, we need to think about that a little more, John smiled. She used recreational drugs, I think, to addiction. The papers didn't say, but I think that's what killed her. Grace died on the way to the hospital to see her before she died, John said. A friend was driving how can I find positives in that scenario? Why do it then, John asked. I promised. Ruth really wanted testimonials the family could cherish. How could I turn her down? The family didn't feel competent to do it right. I didn't know it would be impossible. You didn't know her well enough. Ruth is the most understanding of a lot of them. Talk to her again. It's a matter of integrity of my word. It's not a moral issue. You just can't find the right material. I'll think about it, Henry said. John suggested they get some sleep. Henrietta was waiting for breakfast in the living room with four family members when John descended from the attic the next morning. She stood when he introduced himself. She said nothing but nodded her head slightly, with servant civility so pronounced that he actually waited for a hint of a curtsy. She retreated to a sofa, picking up a magazine from a side table, never looking back. She looked tired and gave no sign she recalled her sleepwalking or their conversation. At the table, Henrietta sat next to Jason, Ruth's youngest son. Do you like school? she asked Jason. Not much, he said. Where do you go? Barrel High. Uh, do you like Hurst Haven, John? asked Henry. I don't, Henry said. The sputtering of bacon grease crescendoed as Ruth added more rashers for new diners coming in from outside through the front door. I'm sorry about candy, Henry said to Jason. Were you close? Nah, Jason said. He was large, about 16, and spoke slowly with a lisp. What will you miss most about her? Henry asked. Jason continued eating. John doubted Jason even remembered the last time he saw Candy, who rarely came this far north, and when she did, stayed with her father, Roger, and not the family. "'I'm giving the eulogy at the funeral. What do you think I should say?' Henry asked. John didn't wait to listen to Jason's response. Henry was doing for Candy's eulogy what he needed to do for Grace. 
What in the name of God could he say good about a wife who had just spurned him? Ten days before her death, she had confessed to him a four-year affair with her boss at the university. She was moving out to live with her lover. John was shocked and angry and quickly despised her for her deceit, for her dishonesty. Emotions that frightened him by their magnitude, emotions that suppressed caring, she was gone. He did not care in the least. He never spoke to her again and moved to a hotel so he could dull the humiliation of her abandonment. And Grace's family and friends might carry his words at the funeral to their graves. The family did not approve of Grace's first divorce, and her contact with family had been limited to letters to Ruth on the holidays. When John turned back into the conversations at the table, he admired Henry's determined interviews with family members. Once her blue eyes locked on his, glittering with porcelain luster and incandescence in stark contrast to the statuesque mobility of her features appropriate for the gravity of the moment. Her facial features had a unique appeal to incongruity that was magnetically attractive, and she was obviously smart. Ah, was she your favorite cousin? Henry asked a young man in coveralls. He shrugged. Henry left the table to sit in the living room and read, legs crossed, her head bent in concentration. I'll go over the list for the vigil with you if you like, Ruth called to John as he stood half-finishing servings of flapjacks buttered and flavored with maple syrup, bacon and sausage, eggs with local cheese, stewed tomatoes, and biscuits with gravy. Thanks, he said with real gratitude. He would know only a few. He was married to Grace for twelve years, but he met the family only twice and had never visited here at the family home. There are pictures and memorabilia in the living room, Ruth said. Upstairs in the guest bedroom, too. Take anything you fancy. She would have wanted you to have them. After breakfast, hidden away in the sewing room where a horizontal rug loom dominated the center of the room, convenient to hide comfortably in an easy chair near the window, John reviewed, as chief librarian, two books for presentation at the Library Society meeting next week. But his mind skated without direction. He had to pretend grief having not experienced it, and never let the family know that Grace and he were no longer soulmates or even friends when she died. He went to bathe and dress for the visit to the funeral home where the vigil would be held, and to reluctantly pay the bill for Grace's interment. She had no entitlements as an adulterer in his mind. But he had no choice. Ruth and her siblings, with few financial resources, had convinced Roger of his commitment to Candy's burial, and after pointing out the mounting expenses for the vigil, assumed John's responsibility for Grace's burial. The request was just, and he could not refuse. On return from the funeral home, after dinner and before bed, John looked at pictures and mementos as Ruth had suggested. There were photos of Grace alone before marriage with Roger, her first husband, and Candy, their only child. And there were many photos of Grace with John, mostly on vacation in the Galapagos, Machu Picchu, the Outback, the Great Wall, the Lake District. On a mantel over the fireplace, photos of Grace's graduation, summa cum laude, and of her with her fellow faculty psychology members at the U were displayed. Her lover was there, but he was not standing close to Grace. 
One five-by-seven showed Grace in a circle of children at Toronto Children's, where she methodically volunteered and donated. She was generous. But the memories irritated John, reminded him of her deception and his humiliation. He would never take mementos of Grace to haunt him, and he left them untouched for Ruth and the family. The vigil was at the funeral home. Both caskets were displayed, exactly the same in color and make, so it was impossible to know which was Grace's and which was Candy's unless you went close and read the engraved brass plates on the ends. Grace's family and friends had, as tradition dictated, baked and cooked, peeled and chopped, sweetened and salted relentlessly to contain their grief. The room was crowded, overheated and loud, as family members greeted friends and acquaintances, most of whom they had not seen for many winters. John saw Henrietta standing alone. She had on a plaid wool skirt with a thin black belt and an off-white blouse with a collar that buttoned down the front. She looked expensively au courant in a traditional way. She was talking to Roger, Candy's father. "'Did you see her often?' Henrietta said. Uh, "'Once or twice a year. She came to visit. Always in the summer,' he said. "'Candy was so accomplished. What were you most proud of?' Henrietta asked. Roger hesitated. He seemed lost for an answer. "'I don't want to talk about it.' Henry leaned toward him slightly. "'I'm so sorry.' "'You're not family.' "'I didn't mean to pry.' "'You're giving the eulogy tomorrow, aren't you?' he said. Uh, Ruth did ask me. I wasn't asked. Why? Henry asked. This family doesn't like me. We've barely spoken for two decades, Roger said. They took Grace aside. She left me when she was pregnant with Candy. Did you know that? Henry stayed silent. Without a thought of anyone but herself. Did you seek reconciliation? Henry asked. Roger's eyes were hard. On my knees, for Christ's sake, and years later, I begged her not to marry him. He waved his hand toward John. Henrietta expressed condolences and walked to join others. A few minutes later, she approached John. How's it going? John asked. It's going miserably. It's as if Candy touched no one's memory. What did Roger say? At least he seemed to have some caring for Candy. I didn't see it. You'll find something to work with. I'm having doubts, Henry said. John smiled and changed the subject. Do you find vigils unsettling, he asked. Ah, this is my first. It's more social than I expected. Lacking a certain gravitas of respect for those departed? Henry smiled. I guess there is a caring. The industry of the preparation and consumption seems to block thinking about the reality of the day. Did you expect tears? John asked. Maybe reflection in silence, a reverence in stance, a control of motion. She was mature to three times her age, as if she'd been too intellectually busy to have a childhood. You're religious then? John asked. In my own way, she said. Ruth approached. You two surviving under the eaves? Is there anything I can do to help? Henry said. Ruth said she could use some help with the cleanup. And again, thank you both for saying a few words tomorrow, Ruth said. It must have been hard being so close to Candy and Grace for so long, 
but it will mean so much to the family. Henrietta's glance to John conveyed her growing lack of enthusiasm, her being trapped by her impulsive acceptance to speak. It's time to start picking up empties, she asked. You could start bringing in plates and glasses from the entrance hall. Put them in the kitchen. Henry walked away. In a few minutes, John left to return to the farm to read in the secluded spot of his sewing room. He went to bed just before nine. His room was especially dark this night. The light from the single dormer window almost extinguished by low-lying dark snow-impregnated clouds. Chilling wind gusts swiped against the side of the house, disturbing him with their crisply tactile, inhuman echoes. Henry shook his shoulder to waken him before midnight. He sat up with his feet on the floor, pulling the covers over his lamp. She'd pulled up a chair to within a few feet of him. You were sobbing and moaning, she said, leaning slightly toward him, concern in her eyes. Are you all right? He was unaware of what he dreamt while he slept. The cover of his pillow was wet, his throat tight when he tried to speak. Is it about your wife? Henry asked. Oh, definitely not. Why do you say that? You loved her. Even in the dark shadows, he could see the concern in Henry's eyes. Definitely not just curiosity. He took deep breaths to relax his chest and his extremities. In the early days, we traveled worldwide together, he said, and we thought the same about a lot of things. And we could talk, late into the night, thinking together. Sounds idyllic, Henry said. It wasn't perfect. She was busy with her teaching and lecturing, and we were often apart, and she worried about Candy, who lived a while with her former husband and then went to school in Ottawa and almost never visited Grace. Candy rarely spoke of her when we were roommates, Henry said. Twelve years, John said. Our marriage changed over that time. But you still love her. Grace had an affair with her chair at the college for four years before she confessed. It hurt me, John said. Were you able to forgive? I don't know. I think so, at times at least. But you didn't love her at the end? John closed his eyes. He was calmer now than when he awoke, although his soul ached with an almost burn to it. After a few minutes, it eased. No, he said. Was it the deception? Henry asked. John thought for a few seconds. It was discovering she didn't love me, when I never doubted her love. Because she loved another didn't mean she didn't love you, Henry said. John hesitated. No, it was gone. She didn't love me. Does that mean you can't grieve her death? The good times? What's to grieve, John asked. Will you be able to speak tomorrow? Of course. I'll think of something. Mention her promotions, her publications, her charitable works. But you're so angry. Anyone would be angry. Their wives leave them for other men. There was the screech of a barn owl behind the house. Faint. You loved her once, Henry said. Yes, I did, John said, but it faded even before she left. It seems her needs for change would never go away, Henry said. I don't want anyone to know she wasn't living with me at the end. Her new lover was driving her to the hospital. They'd heard Candy was close to death. 
Her lover's blood alcohol was 0.15. Think about the folly. She'd be alive today if she'd been faithful, stayed to rediscover what we had. What will you say at the funeral, Henry asked. How can you avoid the circumstances? You don't seem to love her the way you did when you married. Well, those early years were good, he said. He feels a rush of deep sadness never before experienced, a flood released after these eight days since the accident. He has an unbound urge to weep. He squeezes his eyes shut and sets his jaw until his anguish eases enough so he can speak. Is it always there, or does it come in waves? Henry asked. He lay back down on the bed, turning his pillow with the wet side down. A minute passed, and his chest seemed to regain control of his breathing. It just came on, he said, staring into the darkness that obscured the details on the ceiling. It's not easy to forgive, Henry said. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. John 1, 25-26 the one-room church had a single steeple and oak pews. The congregation shivered in coats and gloves with cold, unrelieved by the single electric heater in the back. To the front right, a minister spoke from a raised pulpit. Nine choir members sat in metal folding chairs to the left, an upright piano against the wall behind them. After the gathering, with coffins placed end-to-end -end in front of the congregation, and the greetings complete, Henry was introduced to speak. She ignored the podium, standing between the two coffins. With assuredness, she negotiated through Candy's short, checkered life. Henry enhanced memories of the family she had so doggedly sought that revealed the good of Candy's life no one had ever seen before. And she painted Candy's valiant struggle against life's fears we all face, the temptations, the needs, and Candy seemed to be a Joan of Arc for her own survival and Henry was able to swerve away from Candy's lack of connection to others by choosing a few people she'd had ties to and making those tenuous ties seem to be remarkable accomplishments for Candy. Tasteful and truthful, though never addressing the negatives, and beautifully rendered. John wished he could have led a standing applause. John followed Henry. Henry's position between the coffins had been so effective, he chose not to mount the pulpit, and stood in front of the congregation, as she did, although with more distance from the caskets. He breathed slowly and deeply. He paced his beginning with silence, looking out over the family and childhood friends of Grace, whom she had never really nurtured. Anger surged as he thought of her treatment of him and others, anger that constricted his thinking to her betrayal. He felt a loss of control of his thoughts and feelings and fought to control himself. God, he couldn't let this aggrieved anger corrode his opportunity to make the family proud, give them the satisfaction of kindred respect. The effectiveness of his silent pause was waning. Uh, we have gathered, he began, and he searched for forgiveness that had released his grief last night. And it was there. Grace was who she was, and she could not help herself, always moving on and searching. She had loved him and he forgave her. He spoke from the depth of the grief for a woman he had loved, for years, not the woman he'd lost eight days ago. 
He spoke of their intellectual compatibilities. He described discovering nature together and how it would never have happened without Grace. He spoke to Grace's need to mold her thinking to address the hard metaphysical questions of life, how she searched for answers in science and social work, how she would work for hard, long hours rather than ask someone to do something for her, how humor surprised her, warming her to others. He could see every mind before him following his thoughts, see them appreciating the severity of the loss of Grace. Never did he let the anger misdirect his thoughts from an ever-present pride of having grace in their existence. With his head down, exhausted from his effort, he absorbed the depth of the silence inside the church that told him of the emotions he had stirred. He moved slowly to sit on the front row next to Henry. Out of view of the others, Henry took his hand and squeezed it gently without looking at him. He felt lasting peace and thank God for his strength to overcome his weaknesses. After the service and goodbyes, John was standing in his car, packed and ready for the drive to Toronto. He saw Henry about to get into a white Honda on the passenger side across the parking lot. She stopped when she saw him, stood still looking at him, and he at her for many seconds. His heart ached. She was going back to Ottawa with a friend of the family. Her gaze mesmerized him. How lucky the man would be if Henry ever decided to marry. She waved. She smiled. He lost sight of her as she got in the car. Faintly, he heard the door close. The Honda carrying Henry turned onto the highway, disappearing into the intensity of a persistent storm. John did not move. Snow layered his world, spotting the velvet collar of his Chesterfield. Cold penetrated his clothes, as if spring might never arrive. This story and more than 35 others can be enjoyed free online, as well as five novels, at storyandliteraryfiction.com, a website dedicated to providing resources for fiction writers. Resources include essays, interviews, a blog, a newsletter, and a workshop and tutorial. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of StoryInLiteraryFiction.com.